You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 159. This week a big thank you goes out to Jim and Spencer as they have chosen to support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar where they now get access to special Patreon-only episodes like the one that will be coming out in a few weeks on the Czech Legion and their amazing adventure across Russia after the war. For now, though, after our first two episodes discussing the general state of the three armies on the Western Front in early 1918, in this episode we get down to details. First, we will look at some of the final orders given for the offensive before looking at preparations behind the front. Then, during the second half of this episode, we will focus on the German artillery. Just like every other Western Front offensive after about 1915, the artillery would play a critical role in the coming attack. However, this artillery bombardment would look a lot different than the one had at Passchendaele, the last large Western Front action. This will also be the first of several episodes that will be including a lot of first-hand accounts of events, which I always quite like to include. Just to give a quick reminder on the timeline, the final order for Operation Michael had been given on January 21st, 1918. This would be followed up by more operational instructions on January 24th, and then again on February 8th, before the final detailed orders were sent out on March 10th. These orders, from March 10th, would give a date and time for the attack, stating that the Michael attack would take place on March 21st, and it would seek to break into the first enemy positions at 9.40 a.m. The movement of troops from the Eastern Front had not just brought more men to the West, it had also freed up some of Germany's best military leaders to come West to lead the new attack, and they would play a pivotal role in the March actions. They would be placed under the command of Crown Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria and Crown Prince Wilhelm. It would have made perfect sense to let Ruprecht command the entire offensive, as he had control over the entire area of the front where it was to take place. However, Ludendorff decided against this for several reasons. The first was because it allowed Ludendorff himself to exercise more control over events, since it would require the coordination between two army groups. 
The second reason was because it allowed the Kaiser's son to participate more directly in what was supposed to be the war-winning offensive, or at least the start of it. To allow for this to happen, the boundary between the two army groups was brought north, and Wilhelm's front would now include much of the area that would be taken over by the British from the French. The armies would be arranged in this way. In the north, commanded by Ruprecht, would be General von Bello's army. His orders were to break through in the direction of Bapaume. To his left would be General von Marwitz, and his goal was to break through towards Peron. Once this was done, both armies would then swing north and roll up the British lines. To the south was General Huntier, who would be under Crown Prince Wilhelm. His purpose was to move forward with the other armies and guard the southern flank of the attack as it moved further north. It was envisioned that Houdier would advance no farther than the Crozat Canal, and this would be done solely to guard the flank. This part is important, so remember, this will come into play later. As originally designed, General Houdier, on the southern end of the attack and his 18th army, was not the primary point of effort for the attack. And while this would change after the attack began, from the start, Huntier's army was simply envisioned as a strictly supporting army. The area that would be fought over during the attack was bounded in the south by the wide and marshy river Was, and it would extend north to just south of the city of Arras. Beyond these features, there is not much in terms of distinguishing characteristics for this area. It was mostly just flat rolling hills that continued until the land fell away into the Artois and the River Scarp in the north. The BEF had actually retreated through this area way back in 1914 on its way from Mons to the Marne. Not that it mattered that much at this point, because there weren't that many British troops left from that previous trip. While preparing for the attack, the Germans were actually surprised that the British took over some of the line that had previously been held by the French. This did not greatly concern anyone, while it did slightly change what the Germans were doing, since it meant that they were not attacking the junction between the two armies, but it didn't change the objectives, which was just to pull the two armies apart and cause a crisis so that they would be forced to rush in reinforcements. Along the front of the attack, the exact comparison of forces differed depending on the exact area, but an example of how imbalanced it was can be seen by looking at the area in front of the village of Quan. On this part of the battlefield, the British held 2,000 yards of line, give or take, with about half of a division, somewhere around five battalions. In front of them, even if they did not yet know it, would be 45 German battalions, this type of extreme inequality in numbers was somewhat typical along this area of the front from the start of the attack, which makes it pretty easy to understand how difficult it would be for the British defenders once the attack got rolling. In the run-up to the attack, a lot of work had to be done behind the German lines to make the attack a success. Roads and rails had to be improved, bridges strengthened, all to allow for larger quantity of supplies to quickly move forward. All that work had to be done at night, and troop movements, which began in earnest during the second week of March, were also done in the darkness. To try and keep everything synchronized, the Germans would use a large black ball hung from a balloon. The ball would be dropped at precisely noon, then raised exactly ten minutes later, allowing the entire front to synchronize their watches every day. For a good look at what the German troops were mostly concerned about after they moved up to the front, here is Unterofficer Friedrich Flohr who would say, quote, We knew that the Tommies had in their dugouts all the good things we hadn't. Chocolate, coffee, corned beef, wine, spirits, cigars, cigarettes. How did we fare? 
In the morning, a hot brew supposed to be coffee but tasting of Swedes. Midday, a thin soup of Swedes or dried vegetables without any meat, sometimes a few pieces of potato. Evening, a brew called tea, tasting of Swedes. The bread was good. In my age group, uh, which was 1897 to 1898, got an extra thick slice daily, which was most welcome as we were always hungry. The older men didn't mind, they understood. Jam was of very poor quality, and so was the sausage, which we called rubber sausage. All the same, nobody starved to death. End quote. So for the Americans who are listening, who are unfamiliar with the usage of Swede in that context, uh, a Swede is a term for uh, what is known in the United States as a rutabaga. The Germans would, of course, be planning to use a lot of artillery in the coming attack, but they would be doing something a bit different with it. The artillery plan would be developed by Colonel George Bruckmüller, who had also arrived from the Eastern Front. He brought with him a sterling reputation for his ability to plan and coordinate artillery to create opportunities for an attack. Some call him the most important individual in the entire German army during 1918. The key to Bruckmüller's plan was his belief that the massive and very lengthy barrages that had become a common tactic in the West were futile. Such long preparations told the enemy exactly where you were going to attack and gave them plenty of time to prepare. Instead, Bruckmüller pushed for a short and incredibly intense bombardment that lasted just a few hours. He would also plan for a complicated dance of shells as they moved back and forth along the line, switching from the front lines to reserve lines to the artillery, mixing in high explosives, shrapnel, and gas. All of this was designed to confuse the enemy and disorient the defenders in the front lines. To accomplish all of this precise fire while also maintaining surprise, Brickmuller had all of his guns tested behind the front. Precise firing information about every gun would be gathered to allow them to fire with a good amount of certainty on a target on the first time that they fired. When trying to plan for a bombardment including thousands of guns, being able to count on each gun to hit their targets or pretty close to it was priceless. This type of bombardment was perfect against the strongly held lines near the front of the defenses, and the British troops there would pay dearly for holding the line. To do his work, Brickmuller had 6,473 guns of heavy and medium varieties at his disposal as well as 3,500 trench mortars, or Meinenwerfer, as the Germans called them, and they would be provisioned with over a million shells. These guns represented almost half of the entire strength of the German artillery in the West, but because of pre-registration, they were brought up at the last minute without the British having any really good idea about how many guns were present. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts. 
across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Two nights before the attack, the German assault troops would be moved forward, and overall troop morale was high. It certainly did not hurt that in the weeks leading up to the attack, the troops had been given better and more rations to prepare them for the attack. One German officer would describe the mindset of the troops as one of firm confidence in a good success. As soon as it grew dark, the areas behind the front were suddenly alive with masses of troops moving forward. Because the troops were moving forward two nights before the attack, all of these troops would have to spend the entirety of March the 20th in shelters near the front. This came in the form of dugouts, houses, or special shelters dug just for this occasion. They were packed in these shelters, and I'm sure many were thankful when night came on the 20th and they were able to move forward once again to their jumping off positions. Here is graffiter Willie Adams discussing his experience on the March the 20th. Quote, there was a platoon of us, about 25 men, I should say, under a Feldwebel. We were in a small underground shelter, but only just below ground level. It was a very frightening time. We couldn't leave. We tried to sleep, but most of the day we were just talking nonsense, arguing a bit, not real arguments, just rude jokes on each other, or just getting plain bored, but always hoping that a shell wouldn't come through the thin roof. Toilet? You did it on a spade, and then went up the steps and threw it outside. The other things we just had tins for, and if you were careless, you got the contents of this back when you threw them out over the top of the steps. End quote. Once this movement was done, the frontline trenches were packed with men, with just as much of a concentration in all of the areas behind the front as well, as everybody prepared to move forward. Most of the troops would get to their final positions around 1am, where they would wait for the artillery fire to begin. Each infantryman had been given two flasks of tea or coffee and told to make it last as long as possible. There would not be any more given before the attack began, and who knows how long it would be before they got more afterwards. Speaking of artillery, most of the guns were not moved up until the night before they were needed. They, they would find their positions marked by numbered posts behind the front with pre-stocked ammunition dumps nearby. They would put their complete faith in the ability of each gun to fire off the map, and no registration shots were allowed. In the hours waiting before the attack, men were alone with their thoughts, as Unterofficer Eric Kubatsky describes. Quote, Nobody wants to talk. The strain is too severe. How will it go? Because of all the preparations, down to the smallest detail, none of us had earlier any doubts concerning the high command, but now, with everybody idle and waiting, the tension was almost unbearable. Nagging doubts overcame us. There was no artillery fire from the enemy, not a single rifle from the trenches could be heard, only the flares from the trenches to illuminate the ground, rising high in the air, burning themselves out quickly. End quote. In the artillery, they were preparing to begin their work. Lieutenant de Reserve Otto Poreth of the 271st Field Artillery would discuss the final preparations for his battery. Quote, All battery officers were summoned to a meeting with the group artillery commander. In the group commander's dugout, we received a large number of written orders, as well as the plans and objectives for our attack. 
our watches were synchronized. All of us rushed back to our batteries because only a short time was left to do a lot of work that night. All targets were mapped on our maps, but there was no time to obtain the correct ranging distances to the various targets. That was a risk we had to accept. We all did not know what the weather would be like in the morning, nor what the temperatures would be. We were through with our calculations by 2 a.m. The bombardment would begin at 4.20 a.m. In some sectors, one heavy gun would fire the first round, as, and then the rest would join in. In other areas, large rockets would be used to signal the order to open fire. In all cases, every gun began firing for those first 20 minutes, and they fired at maximum possible speed. After 20 minutes, some of the guns and mortars slowed their fire while the larger guns continued. They would continue a steady pace of fire for 5 hours. During this time, they would fire a mixture of shells on a mixture of targets based on Bruckmuller's formulas. Some of these shells were also gas shells, with two types of gas being used. The first was tear gas in the hope that that would penetrate the British gas masks and irritate the soldiers wearing them, making the soldiers want to take their masks off. If they did this, they would then inhale the second kind of gas, which was a deadly mixture of phosgene and chlorine. The heaviest of the gas fire fell on the British artillery positions, with many as four gas shells for every high-explosive shell fired on the British guns. Along the rest of the front, it was more of a 50-50 sort of situation. The entire goal of so much gas being fired on the artillery was to keep the guns from properly reacting to the German preparations for the attack. After the five-hour bombardment, the German guns fired a five-minute hurricane barrage of just high-explosive shells, and then there was silence as they prepared for the creeping barrage. On the British side of the line, the barrage was hell, but did it actually accomplish anything? From a physical perspective, the Germans had managed to take out most of the British frontline wire, blow in many frontline trenches, and destroy some of their defenses. But it did not destroy very many defenses in the battle zone but it also wasn't meant to. One area where it did have a great effect was in cutting communication wires. The British buried these cables six feet underground, but even this was not enough, and many of them were cut by the bombardment. This was especially problematic around headquarters and between the front lines and the artillery, since many areas would soon find themselves without a way to communicate with the rest of the defenders, they were easily cut off, which fell perfectly into the German plan for infiltration by assault troops. From a casualty perspective, the numbers were actually quite light, with only about 2,500 men killed and maybe 6,000 wounded. Although, as always with these numbers, those figures are a bit squishy, since it's hard to tell who precisely was a casualty due to the artillery as opposed to a casualty caused by the opening phases of the infantry assault. From the front line, the view of the artillery depended on if you were German or British. Here is Lieutenant Rudolf Hoffmann of the German 463rd Regiment. Quote, we could see the flashes of guns behind us, but could see little in front because of the thick fog. If you put your hands over your ears and then drum your fingers vigorously on the back of your head, then you get some idea of what drum fire sounded like to us. On the opposite side of the line was Captain Geoffrey Lawrence of the 9th Scottish Division. Quote, first a shell blew one door in and then the other near me. The candles went out and we groped for our gas helmets in the dark. Splinters of metal were making sparks as they fell through, the, through just above us, and the den was quite indescribable. Soon, amongst the high-explosive shells falling all around us, we heard the unmistakable plop, plop, as gas shells fell mixed with the others, and the burnt potato or onion smell warned us that it was time to put on our gas helmets. End quote. Finally, here is Private E. Atkinson 
of the first West Yorks. Quote, artillery was the great leveler. Nobody could stand more than three hours of sustained shelling before they start falling sleepy and they go numb. You're hammered after three hours and you're there for the picking when they come over. It's a bit like being under an anesthetic. You can't put a lot of resistance up. The first to be affected were the young ones who'd just come out. They would go to one of the older ones, older in service that is, and maybe even cuddle up to him and start crying. An old soldier could be a great comfort to a young one. On the other fronts that I had been on, there had been so much of artillery that whenever Jerry opened up like that, our artillery retaliated and gradually quieted him down. But there was no retaliation this time. He had free do with us, and I think we were sacrificed. End quote. The only thing worse than the artillery was what came next. The stormtroopers were coming. And next episode, the German attack truly begins. <laughs> 